Hi all, thanks so much for watching Making Healthcare Work For You, different perspectives and empowering solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoor Gupta, and today we are welcoming Dr. Fasil Syed, who is the National Director of Primary Care for ChenMed. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We had a wonderful conversation during our pre-interview and couldn't help but notice how access and care and health equity are so important to you. Can you tell us where does that passion for this come from? Well, I mean, it's a moral question for everyone, isn't it? I mean, what good is having this great healthcare delivery system? I mean, we get, we get so impressed when you go into these beautiful buildings with all this fancy equipment, but what good is having all of that if the people who need it the most can't get access to it? Um, we all saw with COVID, especially, you know, COVID, COVID pulled back this curtain and, and of, of health inequity all over America. And, and it showed that, Hey, actually, you know, inequity was always there. You know, it just, the COVID opened our eyes to all of this. And so, you know, if you take the, the finances out of the equation, and, 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 you, and you believe that life is sacred and we must treat everyone the same regardless of their ability to pay. And that, in, that, in, that includes increasing access to care, increasing access, especially to primary care. You know, because if we provide high quality primary care to anyone who needs it, you know, but here's the, but here's the, the issue that we run into. You think about most of the hospital systems, where are they building their, their medical centers? You know, most of these practices, when they're opening, we go into cities. You know, we open up centers in cities. We're in 15 states now. And you would expect us to open centers like in affluent neighborhoods, nice neighborhoods, you know. They have plenty of medical centers, <laughs> plenty of doctors and all that in the affluent neighborhoods. But what about the poor and especially some of the rural areas? You know, these people need high quality care too. So, you know, with COVID, we saw what happens when, we saw the worst of what happens when people don't have access to healthcare. And actually we touched on it in the pre-interview. It's impossible to believe that in the richest country in the world, the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical debt. And the thing that um, doesn't make sense even more so is that more than half the people who declared bankruptcy because of medical debt, they had health insurance. So even having health insurance doesn't protect you from financial ruin. I mean, bankruptcy is like, that's financial ruin. And, and so I think like, you know, we like as doctors, we're like, you know, I'm a doctor and this person's a patient. But nobody chooses to become a patient. It happens. You know, it happened to me. We were talking about my pneumonia a couple of years ago, you know, but I had the pneumonia. I was living my life, you know, just one day I became a patient. <laughs> and so I just went to the emergency room, found out I had pneumonia and got the bill and went through my life. Oh, it's $10,000 for those three hours I was in the emergency room. My goodness. Thank God I have insurance. And the insurance paid about 7000 That's what ended up coming out to. They paid about 7000 and then when I took that bill, 
to my center manager, we, we provide pneumonia treatment in our clinics and we we're full risk. So we pay for, we pay for all, of, you know, we pay for all of that. So she was able to quickly tell me, you know, these antibiotics, this antibiotic costs a dollar. This one costs 40 cents. The Tylenol is not even a penny. The IV fluid is a dollar. And she said, oh, your pneumonia, we can, our cost of treating the pneumonia is not even $10, less than $7. So a lot of these issues go away when you change the currency of healthcare delivery from billing and generating RVUs, you know, a successful practice or successful system in healthcare generates a lot of RVUs, rather than the focus being, okay, generating RVUs for the institution or the business to improving the health of the patients, that's when you start moving in the right direction. Because otherwise, you know, then we're going to keep on having a lot of what we <laughs> <laughs> today, you know, if we want to transition away from a hospital-based healthcare delivery system to one that is based on high-quality primary care, then the incentives themselves need to change. You know, generating RVUs for, you know, more generating more volume, individual RVUs, and then generating higher complexity, that should not be the goal. The goal should be really simplified, focusing on improving health. I'd love to unpack that a little bit, Faisal. You, you said a lot of very valuable things there. Uh, a, a lot of it actually comes back to the money, it feels like, right? whether it's the personal bankruptcies that people are going through because they can't afford it, or where people are opening hospitals in affluent neighborhoods, uh, and what you were talking about in terms of paying for value. So maybe, uh, you know, for our audience that that um, to grasp this a little bit better, let's talk a little bit about when you said most health systems are opening uh, their their uh, centers in affluent neighborhoods, but you're not. You're doing that in other disadvantaged, more uh, neighborhoods where where the care is needed. What is allowing you to do that? What economic model allows you to actually make that a a reasonable venture? Because you certainly can't do it as it's not a charitable enterprise. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, the money the money comes, of course. No money comes. But most people, especially in healthcare, nobody be goes to medical school and say, hey, I'm going to become a doctor to make a lot of money. We all have personal statements somewhere saying something along the lines of, you know, I want to get into healthcare so I can help people. Same with nurses. You know, most people get into healthcare. They want to get, they want to help people. You know, we didn't want to get into this system where, you know, if a patient shows up unscheduled, if a patient shows up unscheduled right now in most outpatient practices across the country, you know, they have a, they get labeled, you know, unscheduled visit. They have the same name. They get objectified and there's a label. It's not a human being with some concern showing up for, <laughs> there's a label. There's a, there's a, there's a conversation that happens many times every day across the country where you have a non-clinical front desk person coming to the back of the clinic and saying something along the lines of, I have a walk-in for da, 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 da. And then there's this collective, something along the lines of like people rolling their eyes saying, oh, how dare they? How dare this person just show up to my clinic unscheduled and now they're an inconvenience to my to my routine, you know, hemodynamically stable 
regular follow-ups. Like that's where we have gotten to. So that's why we, we like to think, okay, there's an economic model that must, surely you've got to pay people to get them to go and find opportunity in the areas of greatest need, right? There's got to be a financial incentive. But what we have seen actually with most people who get into healthcare, it's not the financial incentive that draws them into healthcare. It's that desire to help people. That's what drives their personal fulfillment. And the irony is, is that in the fee-for-service, your typical transactional healthcare delivery model, when a patient shows up unscheduled in their greatest time of need, we view it as a burden. That's how far away we have come from our personal statements from when we were younger. And so it's not the financial incentives that drive us to the areas of greatest need. You know, we have entire teams of people who are passionate. They find fulfillment about helping people who have been forgotten by society. You know, our average patient at Chen Med is over 70 years old with five or more chronic medical conditions at the same time. And most of our seniors, they have issues with transportation. So you can imagine all the other social issues that happen as a direct result of just not having transportation. So we have one center in, in St. Louis where more than 90% of the patients there, they rely on us for transportation services. So forget about where they live, who they live with, what they eat. You know, for us, it's, I mean, when do they eat? Are they eating? How are they eating? I was in Wichita this summer. One of our, we have a temporary center there, delays with opening, you know, COVID, everything blames COVID with opening. And um, one of our staff came out of the patient room, teary-eyed. And she said, I'm with a husband, wife, new patient visit, husband and wife. And she said, you know, I've been living in Wichita. You know, she came from the correctional system. She said, I've been here for years. I didn't know people in my city were suffering as these seniors are over here. The, the husband and wife each take turns eating their meals. So if the husband eats lunch, the wife gets water and she watches him eat lunch. And the quantity of the food is so small that they can't share it. Only one can get satisfied. And then for dinner, the husband drinks water and he watches his wife eat dinner. I mean, this, this is a, this is like our, this is the, these are the communities we're going into. And so to have people who are passionate about helping those who need it the most, you know, my background is community health. So after I've completed my, I trained in family medicine at an unopposed family medicine program. And after I completed my training, I joined a large federally qualified health center in Tampa, Florida. Hillsborough County at the time had some of the worst maternal mortality rates across the country. Like I told you, you know, worse, worse than many third world countries just because of not having basic access. And at that time, my focus was, oh, what can, what can we do to increase access? You know, it's all about increasing access. Not enough people don't have access to our healthcare delivery system. So I joined the FQHC 
And you know, FQHCs are very passionate about increasing access to care. But then when I got to the FQHC, I realized we need time. We need time, especially with underserved populations. Now, the system is designed in such a way where the patients who need access the most oftentimes even lack transportation, basic transportation. So a 10 minute car drive in Tampa, for example, I'm just picking on, let's pick on Tampa, can literally take over an hour if you're taking the bus. And so if you have a schedule and patients are showing up late or they're showing up unscheduled, you know, and you refer to them as walk-ins and you roll your eyes and you tell them, go to the urgent care, go to the emergency room, you know, that increasing access requires more than just taking on patients. It requires a change in our mindset too. So at our community health center, we stopped calling them walk-ins. We started calling them patients in need. Like from that old adage, you know, the, a friend in need is a friend indeed. You know, um, we, we use that. And actually I was so impressed at Chen Med. I spoke with our chief medical officer, Gordon. We had a conversation about patients showing up on schedule. And I said, no, I don't like the language of walk-in because it's a bad feeling. And the, the response is usually negative. It's a frustrating thing that this person is showing up. But if we call them patients in need, you know, the response is different. Suddenly, either most of the time passively, it's not an active, <laughs> some people it's active, but for most people it's passive. They remember why they got into healthcare in the first place. If the front desk person, a non-clinical person, comes to the back saying, I have a patient in need of medical attention. Suddenly now all these teams will start, I want to help, I want to help. Same thing that happens, you're in the airport or you're anywhere and somebody, oh my God, is there a doctor? You're on the plane, is there a doctor? Everybody wants to help. Even if they're not, everybody wants to help. There's something about helping people in need. And so you have a team of people who have an incentive to provide, to transition away from this unethical system. Because we currently have a healthcare delivery system in America where we say healthcare is a privilege. It is a privilege. You know, we ration care based on the patient's ability to pay. And then for those who can least afford it, it's not only a matter of the financial, you know, implications of all of that, but imagine all the detriment that comes because of feeling like, you know, I don't deserve this thing. I'm not privileged enough to have access to this. Let me take a Tylenol for this headache that could be a life-threatening situation. And we only know about it because we wait until there's a chief complaint. And so with ChenMed, ChenMed has a, an, a, an incredible vision to transform healthcare delivery, really to transform healthcare delivery, really start and starting with the most vulnerable populations underserved seniors. So you get people then rally, you get teams of people who rally around this, that this is completely unethical. And let's work for a company that is passionate about improving the health. And so 
So then to understand the financial incentives, we're a full risk organization, meaning we pay for total cost of care. We pay for every medication, every doctor's visit, every emergency room visit, every hospitalization, all of that, right? So when I joined the company, I thought you have to think about waste in healthcare delivery to understand like if you're if now you're paying for total cost of care for a patient or for a group of patients or a community of patients and you would immediately look for okay where where's the waste so I as a doctor thought okay waste happens when primary care doctors refer unnecessarily to specialists or waste happens when we overprescribe brand name drugs when there's a generic equivalent available for example but the big elephant I was missing, the waste is what happens, like what happened with me when I went to the emergency room for the pneumonia. That's the waste. Having a $10,000 bill for a pneumonia that could have been treated in the outpatient setting for less than $10, that's where the waste lies. And so now, well, how can you, you know, it seems like, it's an impossible. How can you influence people to go to the primary care doctor or the primary care delivery system in general, right? That ecosystem, rather than going to the hospital and the emergency room where they have these billboards saying five minute wait times and all. You know, primary care practices have long wait times to come in to the center. So you have to redesign the system. And the incentive is different then. See, if we can prevent an unnecessary hospitalization by preventing an unnecessary emergency room visit, then we make money. And so you can simplify it. If the focus is to improve health overall, you know, if we're trying to improve efficiency and re reduce waste from a purely cost, just looking at the numbers, but we know the bar is set so low that think of it, when you think about what's driving the waste in the healthcare delivery system, you know, we all know it's like 5% of the population is driving 50% of the cost. If we know these numbers, we know that there's a huge cultural shift that must happen, then you must restore trust in the primary care delivery system. And if the primary care delivery system is focused on proving health, then patients wouldn't be going to the emergency room or going to the hospital if they could have gone to the primary care doctor, primary care system, where they, where they feel like, hey, you know, this place, I trust them to look after me much, much more than some random person in a hospital or in an urgent care. You know, you had uh, talked in the pre-interview about the, the wise words of your dad, we pay for what we don't know. And as you were, you know, just talking just now, it kept resonating for me. I wonder if you could just help illustrate for the audience, what does that really mean? And how do you translate that into a couple of things that we could learn more about so that we're actually paying for more value? You know, when I was a teenager, you know, like most teenagers, I'm a father now to a teenager who's a, who's a freshman in high school. And so I, you know, if I wanted something, you know, it could have been anything, whatever the thing was, car, any, you know, clothes, whatever. Um, I would just tell my father, you know, I want this. And, and he would wait. He would say, no, no, wait, let me, let me see what I can do. Let me see if I'm getting the best deal, the best price. 
there was never a time that we'd buy a car and he would just go to somewhere and buy a car. I mean, he always left the dealership making them walk to come back. I'm kicking and screaming, saying, no, I want the car, I want the car. And he, he, would, he would say, no, 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 no. In America, you pay for what you don't know. You pay for what you don't know. And, and sadly, with healthcare delivery, we're all paying for it, whether we realize it or not. You know, by not understanding or knowing the needs of the most vulnerable in our country, by not knowing or understanding that, my God, almost 30 million Americans don't have health insurance, an even larger number cannot afford their co-pays, probably even larger than that, their deductibles, you know, we all end up paying for it because then you end up having primary care delivered in all the wrong places. You know, then you end up having primary care, you know, it's just like this small little space. And there's only a couple things when we think of primary care. We go to my primary care doctor for my wellness visit. I go to my primary care doctor to get my medications refilled. I go to my primary care doctor to get my referral <laughs> renewals. You know, you have the small, you know, primary care is a little bitty thing. You know, the, the value of primary care is not there. But suddenly, if you had a high quality primary care delivery system, who knows public health better than primary care doctors? You know, when I think about with the COVID vaccine rollout and we went to the hospitals, pediatricians could have done a much better job. They're very good <laughs> at giving vaccines. Primary care offices, we get vaccines all the time. And there, and there was a surprise that, wow, I can't believe so many, why aren't people going to these mass vaccination sites and all the people who need it the most, you know, they, you, know, they, you know, because primary care is not viewed as public health. Public health is one thing and primary care is another thing. You know, people don't view primary care for urgent care. You know, why not? Why not if a patient needs IV fluid, needs, has having an asthma exacerbation, COPD exacerbation, why not? Why not provide those treatments? Maybe it's semantics, like you were saying before with the patient in need versus a, a walk-in, you know, like I never would think like, I, I honestly didn't even know that, that you could get an IV at a primary care doctor. And I, sure. I do this show and I didn't know that I would assume that you have to go somewhere like an urgent care to get that. I just assumed it was like different supplies. You can fix so many problems with just very small interventions. And the cost, like IV bag, bag of IV fluid is a dollar. You know, the doctor-patient relationship used to be sacred. It used to be an intimate relationship, not a transactional one. We didn't go to the doctor thinking about money and the cost and all this, like, you know, how much time. It, it, you know, how can we make it sacred again? You know, I, I think about like, what, you know, if, so if you're healthy, you see the doctor, what, once a year? 15 minutes, because the doctor has to type and all that stuff. You know, how, how will anyone form a trusting or meaningful relationship when we only see the patients, you know, or each other once a year for 15 minutes? So you need to have time to build that trust, right? In our, we don't even call it primary care. We call it transformative primary care. So in our transformative primary care model, we see our patients at least monthly and even more if you need to. So you got to learn, 
that allows you to learn about all the little things. Like you get to learn about all what's going on in their day-to-day -day lives, what's going on with their families, their home environment. Um, you even know if there's like a family member has a problem with like the car breaking down or, you know, if they can't get to the grocery store to get food, you know, uh, healthy food even. You know, those small moments, they may not seem like much because as doctors, we like to think right to pathophysiology. Everything goes right to what is the diagnosis and what do I need to do to get? But actually it's those moments that brings the, the patient and the doctor closer together. And if you really wanted to transform someone's life, it takes a holistic approach. It takes a holistic approach. And the doctor, you know, can even figure out ways to help the patient get to the grocery store. Thank you so much for that conversation. That was amazing. You provided so many fabulous insights and I'm really privileged that we got to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank Sorry, you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.